that's the beautiful thing about math that essentially helps you to organize the ideas in your head. In the case of algebra, for example, you have an X. X is the unknown. You need to know how to solve linear equations. Otherwise, you're going to be like, I don't know, you're going to be like how, guessing the answer. It's not a big deal. By, yeah. help, by knowing algebra, that helps you to organize the ideas and to figure out things that, that otherwise would be impossible. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the HVMN Podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. The topic this week, mental math. I've always been fairly quick at doing some calculations in my head, and it really just boils down to a few simple algorithms and sequences. And we always say here at the company that we take a systems approach to the human platform. And aspects of math really is like that. We're just taking a systems approach to calculations within the brain. And this week, I talked to a real mental math expert. His name is Yusnir Vieira. He's also known as the human calendar. Born and raised in Cuba, Yusnir holds the world record in calculating calendar dates and uses a mixture of flash math and trained memorization. Along with demonstrating this unique skill within the episode, Yusnir and I talk about the importance of math for daily life, the future of education, and what it was like to grow up under the Cuban government and how his upbringing pushed him to become one of the best mental sport athletes today. If you're tuning in via audio, remember to hit that subscribe button for weekly episodes. For folks on YouTube, please subscribe and hit that bell to enable post notifications. Without further ado, let's get right to it. Yusnir, thanks for coming on the program. Excited to chat. Thank you for having me on the show. I appreciate it. So I'm Yusnir Vieira. I've been called the human calendar okay. because I have a world record doing calendar dates, which is essentially a mental calculation. For example, if you tell me your birthday, I can tell you the, the day of the week. Maybe we can try that right now. All right. Uh, December 27th, 1988. That was a Tuesday, and this year is going to be a Thursday. Okay. Yeah, I think it's right. I think it is a <laughs> Tuesday, and I don't know if it's a Thursday this week, but Zill, oh. we'll, we'll double-check your work there. The reason I also know is because your birthday and my birthday, they fall on the same day of the week every year. For example, I was born on April 26th, and yours is December 27th. Yeah. Mine was a Thursday, so I'm, I'm, I know for sure that yours is going to be a Thursday, too. Because yeah. it's a multiple of seven off. Exactly, because there is a multiple of seven in the difference of days. Yeah, and I guess it's after the leap year date, so it's consistent. Exactly, but remember, between <laughs> April 26th and December 27th, there is no February 29th in between. Right. So, zooming back and before you became known as a world calendar calculator, what was your history? What was your story? I mean, did you, as a five-year-old, realize you had a knack with calendars and dates, memory? Like, what were the inklings as you were growing up that let you well, know that, hey, there's something interesting with my brain that other people don't have? Since I remember, I was really good with numbers, but I was blessed too because I have two parents and they're both math professors. Okay. So essentially, that was my first inclination. I love math because both of my parents were able to explain me things that I didn't know when I was four or five years old, and I was fascinated. So I realized that I have this talent about mental math. Later on, when I was in kindergarten or first grade, I was able to do the tables really fast, and they came to me naturally. So I realized that I have a talent for that. But it wasn't until I was in college that I started doing calendar dates, hmm. because I knew that I was good with numbers, but I didn't know that I could solve calendar dates. And essentially what I do when I solve calendar dates, I'm just doing mental math in my head really fast. Hmm. And I got interested in mental calculation after I found out that every other year we have a competition, the Mental Calculation World Cup. And I wanted to participate. And I was living in Cuba. I was, I was born and raised in Cuba, in Havana, Cuba, when you, I didn't have any money to travel on anything. Somehow I wanted to compete. I want to prove myself against the best in the world. And I say, okay, the only way you can achieve that is by training really hard. And that's what I did. I'm talking about when I was 22. A few months later, I was actually getting good scores in calendar dates. Back then, I think the record was 33 dates in one minute. So I was supposed to calculate 33 dates or more in one minute. Mm. And back in 2005, I was able to do 42 calendar dates. And that's how I became for the first time the world record holder. So this is just on a piece of paper or is it done verbally? In this case, it's actually a software that essentially I press start and a bunch of days are going to appear in front of me. 
And if I think the first day is a Monday, I just press one on the keyboard. If I think okay. it's a Tuesday, so it's, I okay. press two. Yeah, okay, got yeah. it. That works is faster because if not, that will slow me down if I have to say Tuesday or Wednesday. So first. 33 was a world record at the time. And I did 42 dates in one minute. So a little bit over a second a date. Yeah, wow. yeah. That's that pretty impressive. <laughs> so did you have a photographic memory in terms of memory? Is this more of a speed in terms of calculation? Is this a memory, a skill, a combination of both? How would you describe it to our listeners and, and to our audience? It's a bunch of things. First of all, you need to have a good technique. For example, I have an algorithm that essentially I grab the last two numbers of the year and I add the number of February 29th, which is essentially the year divided by four. So it's a formula. Mm-hmm. That after I add a bunch of numbers, let's say after five or six additions, I just divide the result by seven. If I get a remainder of one, it's a Monday. Right. If I get a remainder of two, it's a Tuesday and so on. Okay. Honestly, just to make you the long story short, that's it. But honestly, when it comes to a world record, it's a little more than that. I need to be good at fast reading. I have to train my speed reading. I have to be really fast at it because I'm getting to a point that I'm answering one date and I'm already calculating the next one because that way I can be faster. Right. I see. So this is not a memory trick where we've had people that we've spoken to that are memory champions or good at memorizing words or cards. This is less so of like a pure memorization. This is you with a very good algorithm to solving these division problems, essentially, and getting the remainder and modulus, and then having a really good technique, and then obviously being really, really quick at doing these snap division problems in your head. Yeah. Honestly, some, I would say a little mem- memory is involved because, right. for example, sometimes I see a date that I know I've seen it before and it comes to my mind really quick. So I know, for example, the year 2018 is special because it's a current year. So I know what to do right away. I take shortcuts if I find out that I know I have done that day before. Yeah. As a computer scientist, it's kind of like interesting, I guess. It's like you have a cache, essentially. You have a cache of answers. And obviously, if you've memorized and you've seen these dates before, you're going to have a bigger cache and that's going to be an instant recall. But if you have to do a little bit of a calculation, you have really, really good technique to make that calculation. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. So I'm sure that as you knew that you were good at doing these multiplication tables and starting to do these speed calculations, why focus on calendar dates? Are there other calculation competitions that are popular? Yes. Have you participated in those? Why did yeah. you focus on the calendar day one? I'd love to hear a little bit of the decision and thinking process there. Okay, let me tell you the, the long story then. First of all, I wanted to do memory because I believe in myself and what I believe about myself is that I'm better at memory than mental math. So I tried to memorize numbers like decimals in one second. I remember the record belongs to, back then belongs to a guy from Spain, Ramon Campayo, and he was able to memorize like 15, 16 decimals in one second. Hmm. And I was very close to that. I remember one day I memorized 16. I was so happy because I finally I tied the world record. And then I found out later, he just have a new record of 18 and I gave up. <laughs> so I say it's too much for me. 18 is too much. So I decided to switch to another task, and that's how I found calendar dates. I was always amazed about how fast people could do it. And I'm like, okay, are they involved in memory or, or is it math? I realized, because I did my own formula, that I was pretty much math. I did it, and after a few weeks of practicing, I realized that I could break the record. And that's essentially how I started doing calendar dates, because I knew I could be the best in the world. How old were you at this time? I was 22. Okay. So obviously, you had a lot of confidence in your mathematical ability. When was the first time that you realized that your classmates, your peers, weren't as mathematically in tune as you? Was this early realization where I'm just picking up math a lot faster than my classmates in math class? Or you just assume that everyone was good at math? Curious to hear your growth story there. Well, honestly, I thought everybody could do what I was able to do. For me, that comes natural. So I was like, okay, I think everybody's doing that. Later, I realized that it was only me in the class that could do mental math. Mm-hmm. And that's how I knew I was special in that sense. I thought it was normal. I don't see me doing anything special. I guess I just have a talent. And because I practice a lot, I realized that that talent could be, I don't know, I just explode my talent. Yeah, so I'm curious to learn about your training philosophy on this. So we talked to a lot of different athletes who are 
physical athletes. And in this case, we can consider this like a cognitive athlete, right? You're competing with your mind on a mm -hmm. sport, right? This is like a game that you're competing with. So when you think about training for an event, are you just training that specific task again and again and again? Or I'm trying to get an analogy to sports. There's like cross training. You know, if you're a basketball player, sometimes you do jujitsu or gymnastics to practice your flexibility. Is there that notion with cognitive sport? Essentially, in my case, when I go to competitions, we compete in addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, counting the dates, and some other that we call surprise tasks because we don't know what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. And what I do normally, I focus on those tasks. In my case, I do it like that way. For example, if I'm doing counting the dates, maybe instead of trying to calculate a date between 1600 and 2100, which is the current format, mm -hmm. I try something like a shorter range. So maybe I do 10 days to see how long it takes me 10 days. So I break down the task a little bit, but I essentially practice for the task. That's essentially what I do. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense in terms of my reading of the literature of like these brain training games, right? There's been some software developed in Silicon Valley where you play some of these games and the idea is that it makes you smarter for other tasks. And maybe down the line, this could be helpful for therapeutic use cases for people with cognitive impairment. But what you're seeing, and at least you know from a world championship level, you're not seeing a lot of value from a cross-training perspective. You might as well just train the, the activity of what you're competing in. Yeah, honestly, in my case, that's how I got the results by just focusing whatever I have to do, just that. I mean, the more I focus, the better the result for me, at least for me. Yeah, it makes sense. Is what I've, I've seen as well, right? If you're playing tennis, you practice freaking tennis. Anything else that you're not training for, it's kind of a waste of energy. But Don't get me wrong. Sometimes yeah. I need to do some extra activities, something different to disconnect from that work of training, you know? Yeah. And I do exercises, of course. Yeah. But I do it more to just relax a little bit because after you train a lot, your brain, is, it looks like it's going to blow and you need some relaxation time. Like you need to relax a little bit. Yeah, I think that's actually an interesting discussion topic because again, one of the highest, most discussed topics recently in athletic performance is this notion of adaptation period of training and then recovery period. And that I think is more intuitive sense to people because you know that when your muscles sore, it's like you can't lift any more weights. And I think we probably all have the equal intuition that you do a lot of hard reading or hard math problems, your brain is tired. I guess that's like a very similar analogy. I mean, do you think about cycling your mental effort? Do you think about some of the techniques around cycling diet or sleep? Do you time some of these things out in terms of how you train for these events? So in my case, actually, I keep a record of everything that I do those days. Yes. Okay. So yeah, I like to make it a cycle. Actually, one of the things that I remember that I was doing the first time uh, that I was breaking this record back in Cuba, recently I did it while living here in US, but before I was living in Cuba. Yeah. And one thing that I remember I was telling my parents, in one hour, I need you to help me to disconnect from here because if you don't do it, <laughs> I'm going to be like doing like the whole time. Right. So I need your help by telling me, okay, do something else. And I time myself. I'm going to spend one hour doing this, then one hour doing this, and one hour doing that. Yeah, I do a cycle. That's actually helpful because I'm just thinking back when I was a student, your cognitive learning, I don't think people are very thoughtful of how they learn, right? I think it's kind of like, okay, you have a class, do homework, and kind of just like plow through three, four hours and get kind of distracted, but just sit and finish your homework. Maybe people today are starting to think about their learning in a more formulaic or more just thoughtful approach. Do you think there's some notion to that? Like, it sounds like when you train, you're learning in a very thoughtful way. And when professional athletes train their sport, they're training in very, very thoughtful training blocks. And that's making it the difference between a world champion and just like a reasonable player. Can we see that happening in the cognitive sport world? And how, do you think this has broader implications to how people should be thinking about learning as a student? I think so. And honestly, what I believe is like you need to know yourself better than anyone else. And the more you know yourself, the more you know how much you can take it. Okay, I call it like that. Because let's be honest, the studying sometimes is painful. Sometimes it's not so painful because if you see the reward, you feel like, okay, I'm doing it because I want to. But for example, let's say you want to study for something, make sure that you know yourself. You know that you're going to be focused for one hour. So just commit to that. Yeah. Maybe after a while, you realize that one hour is too much, just do 20 minutes. Or maybe you think two hours is too little for you because you can take it. Take it for two hours. I know there are some studies that suggest maybe 20 minutes or one hour. I'm the kind of person that I think that depends on the specific individual. Mm -hmm. So it's only you who knows the answer to that question. 
So you need to pretty much practice to see how it goes. And every time you get a good result, that's probably good. That's probably what you need to keep doing. Yeah. You need to find your own system. That's what I'm saying. That makes sense. And I think it's kind of funny that I'm like so focused on the physical side because that's been sort of where my mind has been at. But yeah, I was a good student growing up and it makes sense that like if you just get good at having focused, dedicated time, your ability to focus for longer and longer periods of time improves, right? Like you can imagine that maybe you can only just focus and read for 20 minutes at a time and you need a break. But mm -hmm. as you build that mental resilience that you're, you can absorb information, you can have that focus, you can extend that period out longer. And that might just bring up an interesting sort of side segue. Does it feel like people's focus is less now because of social media, because of all these notifications, because we have little buzzing little things in our pocket all the time? I think yeah. that I was better able to focus as a kid. I was just like reading all the time. I was able to sit down and do math problems for a long time. Yeah. Do you see that happening yeah, in, in that, your that world is, too? Yeah, that is happening. That is happening everywhere. It happens to me too. Yeah. So it happens to almost everyone, probably everyone. Even for me, for me, it's even more, I can notice even more for me because I was living in Cuba when I was a kid. <laughs> when I didn't have internet, I didn't have anything. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was really easy for me to just focus on one thing because that's probably the only thing I had to do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but now with so many options, the bad thing about that, the downside is that we have so many options that we, it's hard to focus right. on one thing. And the only truth is, is that sometimes we need to focus on things that we don't like that much because maybe we're not good at that. But this is what I discovered so far. I believe that if you're good at something, you will like it. For example, I love training calendar dates. For me, I can focus because it doesn't hurt me to train that because I love it. So what I'm trying to say is the following. If you, if you actually have to focus on something that you love, it's going to be way easier for you. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can spend one, two hours in focus mode and you'll be fine. Now, if you're trying to do something that you don't like, let's say you have to pay the bills, I'm going to spend the next 20 minutes paying all my bills and all that, then of course, it's going to be hard to focus. Yeah. And you're going to be tempted to just check out your Instagram or Facebook account while you are in, on it. Right. Did you grow to love calendar dates because you're so good at it? Or was it something, I mean, it, it's kind of silly to say, but like, I guess there wasn't people growing up like, hey, I want to be a calendar date yeah. world champion. That's what I presume, but it sounds like you really grew to love it because you realized you're really good at it. And That's I think the way it was for me. Okay. That was the way it was for me because, like I say, I believe in like, I'm good at something. That's why I like it. The other way around, I'm not so believable. It's not like, oh, I like it. That's why I'm good at it. No, no, you're good at it. That's why you like it. Right. <laughs> so I believe in that yeah. philosophy. I think it's kind of a chicken and an egg, right? Like, I think it's a virtuous cycle because then you like it or that you're good at it and you like it and then you like it because you're good at it. And then it's a positive feedback loop. But I think probably you're right that maybe the initial first step is like an introduction and you have some sort of natural knack at it and it gets that flywheel going. It's just my opinion. I might be wrong, yeah. but I believe in that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think especially if you're, you know, a cognitive athlete here, then like the, you're probably a lot more attuned to when you're distracted or not distracted. Would you say that's the case? Or is it just like, hey, everyone kind of knows that they're distracted? Or is it because like, hey, your mind is your edge? You just are a lot more self-introspective than the normal person. Do you find that to be true? You mean like, uh, to be true, what exactly? The that, that you think that you're more introspective or more self-aware. Because you can make the argument that a lot of people don't even think about their focus. I think people listening to this podcast, I would say, are on the upper echelon because they're th like the topics that we cover in this podcast are introspective on their mental processes and how to better improve themselves. Obviously, otherwise, like if you just don't care about improvement, you probably wouldn't be listening to this conversation right now. But I would imagine that you're even further attuned on that spectrum. Or is it like you're a normal person and with a normal amount of distraction and normal amount of discipline, but you happen to be really damn good and have spent a lot of hours doing calendar dates? I honestly believe in that. I believe hard okay. work is the most important thing. You can be a better version of yourself by just practicing like crazy. Seriously, and that's what I have found. Actually, I know people, I, I consider myself a normal person. I have a life, I have a <laughs> wife, a daughter, you know, yeah, yeah. I do normal stuff, let's, whatever normal is nowadays. <laughs> so I think the, what makes me maybe a little different is the amount of hours that I put, the effort that I put in order to be the human calendar. If I don't do the practice, even if I have the talent that I remember I, I have since I was four or five, I wouldn't be able to be the, the world record holder yeah. because it's not only about your talent. Actually, your talent, I always say that is the least important thing. Why? Because your talent, whatever that is, you either have it or not. It doesn't matter. You're not going to change it. 
But what you can change, what you can really change every single day of your life is the effort that you put into making your talent the best version of it. So in my case, I think the most important thing is the practice. If you practice, 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 and you persist, you're going to become a better version of yourself. And that's what I do every single day. No, I think that's very humble and very just practical advice for people. I mean, clearly your talent level is high. You're not going to be the best in the world at something without some sort of base level talent, but you've put in your hours. Um, like I said, I mean, it's not about being the best in the world. It's about being the best you can be. Yeah. That's the most important thing. Yeah. I actually have kids that I train, and when they started with me, they were not good at math. And they can do calendar dates under two seconds. So it's possible to teach these skills. All you need to do is put the hours to it. Yeah. You mentioned growing up in Cuba. I actually had the pleasure of visiting Havana in Cuba probably two, three years ago now, which is a very interesting visit because I think being an American tourist, you go to Europe, you go to Asia, you see McDonald's, you see Starbucks, you see Western civilization everywhere. And Cuba was the first country where there's no Coke, there's no yeah. McDonald's. It's like, whoa, <laughs> like there are weird Russian branded things everywhere, right? Uh-huh. Like, or just like, yeah, it was, it, curious to dive into your personal story there and, and moving off the calendar and, and diving into the you know, the use in your story, what was it like living in Cuba, the whole communist thing? Maybe that's <laughs> controversial, you, but yeah, just yeah. curious to hear about, you know, your life story there. Okay, being a kid was not that bad, honestly, but I remember growing up watching Russian cartoons, you know, instead of American cartoons. <laughs> yeah. So it's crazy that I have so much in common with people from the Western, from the Eastern Europe or Russia in terms of cartoons. Do you speak Russian? Down- was it in Russian? No, I don't speak Russian, but okay. a lot of people in the 80s and the 70s, Instead of learning English, they learn Russian. So a lot of people in Cuba speak Russian. Not me personally, but yeah, a lot of people in Cuba speak Russian. For me, when I was a kid, it was fine because when you're a kid, you don't care about anything except playing and going to school. And to be honest, in Cuba, I had good education. The best I could have, honestly. No complaints about it. So I learned a lot from my professors. Actually, the man who I am today, I probably, I would say it came more from Cuba than from any other uh, part of the world. So whatever I learned from math is from my Cuban professors. But it gets to a point in which you're not a kid anymore and you need to make a life. You need to, you, you have dreams that you want to fulfill. And in my case, I wasn't able to fulfill them. Actually, I graduated in 2005 from computer science at the University of Havana in Cuba. And I remember I was a professor and I was making $20 one month. That was my salary, $20 one month. It's hard to believe, but it's happening in Cuba. I think nowadays it's still 20, 25, 30, $40 a month. That's right. nothing. And I was a professor at the University of Havana, the most important university in the country. Right. So I realized if I wanted just to go to Germany, for example, for the championship, I couldn't even afford to pay for my ticket to fly there. Yeah, no way. No way. There is no way. I tried. Yeah. I actually asked the government for help, but nobody cares. I mean, it's hard. I mean, it's always hard to ask for help and to receive help. So I realized that I have to do something different because eventually I wanted to escape. For clarity, and this is my understanding, is that they, they give you like food rations. So like you yeah. have your food and housing. It's not like you're living off $20 a month for all food and rent. So this is exactly. $20 of income on top of the standard ration, just to clarify. So yeah. yeah, in Cuba, technically we don't have taxes. Technically we don't have to pay for medical insurance, but guess what? It's only $20. You only save $20. Actually, you don't save $20 because just the ration of food, they say they give you because the government give you that, it's not enough. So you have to buy. Essentially, in Cuba, a lot of people, unfortunately, have to steal from the government mm. and because that's the only way to survive. And the concept of stealing, I know this sounds really hard, but it's the truth, in my opinion. So it's sad. I, I didn't want to live that life. I didn't want to steal to survive. That's why I left Cuba when I was 25. 10 years ago. So essentially, I tried to leave Cuba. I want to escape the communism system. Actually, I call it communism, but it shouldn't be called communism because, because as you can see, the people who are in command, they don't have the same necessities that the people in Cuba have. Right. So I think it's a fake communism. It's not even a socialism, whatever they want to call it. It's not real. It's just the name, that the label they put to seem nice, but it's, it's not nice. That's my opinion about the Cuban government. And I love Cuba. It's in my blood. It's my nature. Right. But yeah, I don't like the Cuban government at all. So I wanted to escape the communism somehow. And by doing kind of dates, I found my way out of Cuba. 
I was able to go to competitions in Germany. Actually, I, I went to this competition back in 2006 and I was able to finish in fourth place overall. I'm talking about addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, square roots, counting the dates. I finished fourth in that competition. This is interesting. When I went to Germany, I realized that everything that had been told in, back in Cuba was a lie. And let me explain you why. And I'm sorry that I, it takes me so, so much time. So just call me if you think it's too no, much. This is interesting. <laughs> when I was in Berlin, in, in Berlin, they have this museum next to Checkpoint Charlie. I forgot the name of the museum. I'm pretty sure we can go later. And in Cuba, they told me that the East Germany was a good one and the West Germany was the bad one, <laughs> you know? Yep. And I went to this museum that was telling me that people were escaping from the good one <laughs> to the bad one. And right. I say, how so? Are you, are you kidding me? So believe it or not, I have to wait until I was 24 when I traveled to Germany the first time to realize that I was brainwashed. And it's freaking hard that you're 24 and now you're realizing that you have been lied your whole life. I feel like betrayed. And that, that's was the one that, I decided. Was it a pretty quick realization? I mean, or was yeah. this, it was just like you saw these holes and like, yeah, hey, the story doesn't yeah. make sense. Or is it just like you I'm were- telling you, it's like I was blind and now I can see. Okay. That's simple. Yeah. It was like instantly. I'm like, oh my God. It's not that I was in favor of the government. I was just pretty much apolitical at that point. Right. But at that point, I'm like, okay, I have to be political. I have to be against that because that's wrong. And this is the truth because I'm seeing the truth in front of me. And if you go to Cuba, yeah. you realize that we don't have, apparently in Cuba, they don't have commercials like Coca-Cola or whatever. Right. They don't have commercials. Right. But they do have commercials about, oh, we are the best government in the world. So that's their way. Yeah, you see a lot of Che Guevara <laughs> signs and kind of like the propaganda that you see in TV shows. Exactly. It's just, it is kind of like that. It's like, whoa, it's kind of like hipster retro communism, but like it's only hipster in America because it's kind of like sexy, but like in Cuba, that was just reality. America is the opposite. In America, we have too many options. That is too much. <laughs> yeah. In Cuba, we don't have an option. Actually, in Cuba, I would say more than 50% of the population, they haven't been out of Cuba. They have been living their whole life in Cuba. Right. Probably 70% of the people. Yeah. So we don't have that many information. Yeah. So especially if you see someone, if you know someone that has been outside of Cuba, you probably go to that person. Okay, tell me, how was Germany? How was Berlin? I had a lot of people asking me those questions when I came back from Germany to Cuba yeah. the first time I traveled out of Cuba. Yeah. That's when I realized, okay, I need to leave this island. I can't live here. I mean, I was not brave enough to fight it, but I, I have only one life. I decided to live it differently. So I was more like, my dream is to maybe create a system or an academy or something that I can share my knowledge with the whole world. And in Cuba, it was going to be impossible. Actually, I was invited to a competition in Mexico. Not to a competition, it's called the, it was the National Week of Mathematics in Puebla, Mexico. Mm-hmm. And I actually, after I finished my conference, I never went back. I actually took north and I came to America. That was at the end of 2007. Uh, back then, we have this law in America that if you were Cuban, you were allowed to stay in America because it's really hard for the Cubans to live in that life of communism. And I had some trouble because I wasn't speaking my mind before coming here. I'm like, okay, I need to either leave or I'm going to get into jail because I'm not supposed to speak my mind in Cuba. Wow. So, so there's like I, a kind of a political asylum for Cuban. Yeah, political asylum. That's what I applied to. And that's how I got into the U.S. And I'm an American citizen now. So, yeah. But I think that's the beauty of America. Like... You and I can be speaking towards each other, completely different parts of the world, but we're all Americans, which is like the magic of America. How did you get the initial funding to get out to get to Berlin? It's not like you had $20 a month that you're saving up. You probably need to no. use that money to like buy food. Do you, well, like the government was going to help you out. Did you get sponsored? How did, you, how, did, how did that initial little spark happen? Well, let me tell you, I'm Amber Resourceful, and I proved myself there. <laughs> so one thing that I did, I had good friends. My best friend, she's just living in Germany. Right now she's in Stuttgart, but back then she was in Berlin. And she told me, you can stay at my home with no problem. You don't have to pay for anything. Actually, I will drive you or we take the train, whatever is necessary to the competition. That was in a city that is called Gießen in Germany. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I had a place to stay with no problem. And also I got a sponsorship from the people that were organizing the event. And my friend helped them too. And between the two of them, they paid for my flight ticket. And yeah, it was really intense, really hard. Actually, there were moments that I thought that I was not going to be able to do it because it was even hard for me to tell them, please help me. Because I'm not the kind of person that I like to be the one in control and I wasn't the one in control. Right. So thank God I had good friends. She's my best friend. So I love her. Daily, if you're listening to the podcast, you, of course, you're going to be listening because I, I'm telling <laughs> you. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for what you did for me. 
It's a wild journey. I mean, did you have any sense that these math calculations would have given you the opportunity to explore the world? Or at the time, was it just an outlet for like a bright young college student in terms of like having some talent and wanting to compete with the best? At the beginning, no, I didn't know that this was going to happen. And when I say this, I mean this new life that opens to me after the records. No, I thought I was going to do that just because I wanted to be one of the best in the world. Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I'm the kind of person that I believe that you don't have, I mean, you have to look at the reward, but you have to think more, you have to be more human in that sense. Meaning that, for example, if you want to do something, just do it because you want to. Don't expect the results to come immediately. They will come eventually if they're meaning to come to you, but don't do it because of the results. Do it because you want to. Yeah. You know, and that's how I did it. And I see the results now. Yeah. I think that's like the mindset of champions. Again, I think that's been a recurring theme in a lot of these conversations where if your goal is to be number one, it's very hard to sustain because you get setbacks. You're not instantly mm-hmm. going to be number one. But if you enjoy the journey and you have pride in the ethic, the mm-hmm. work, mm-hmm. and that you see that small incremental gains day mm-hmm. after day after day, hour after hour after hour, that's what's going to sustain you to have enough quality hours in your craft to eventually be the world's best. I agree. Honestly, I haven't been the first every single time. This record of 42 that I did back in 2005, it was broken a few months later from the same guy from Germany. His name is Matthias Kesselschlager. I'm sorry yeah. about my German. I don't know <laughs> how to say it correctly. Yeah. He did 45. And a few months later, I say, okay, let me train really hard. And I got it to 56. Hold you know, it's, it's been some back and forth. Yeah. I got 59. Then another guy from Germany, he did 70. You know, it's been, it's a long list. Uh, a guy from Cuba who actually, I taught him how to do some stuff. He actually did 74 one time. He had the world record for a few months. And the German guy, he did 78. So, I mean, it's a lot. I did 93. Today, I, I can tell you that I'm actually, the record right now is 140 days. And it's mine, thank yeah. God. <laughs> 140 days, I was able to do that on January 27th. But I'm sure that maybe in the near future, somebody else is going to break it. Because there is something <laughs> that I have realized about this. There is always going to be someone else that is going to come out of nowhere or maybe out of somewhere right. that is going to beat you. And I have to be okay with that. Thank God I still have it, but I'm ready to let it go. Yeah, wow. So, I mean, you're doing like almost two and a third dates yeah. per second. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's like faster than most people can count, maybe. You know, it's just like, yeah. can you count to 140 in a minute? Maybe. Actually, like, it's like, it's like you're very close, right? It's like, how fast can you just. But remember, in my case, I have an advantage that instead of saying the answer, instead of yeah. speaking the answer, I type something. It's easier to move your finger of course, of course. than to just say Tuesday. Even me, I think in Spanish. So I don't think of Tuesday, I think of Martes, which means Tuesday in Spanish. Yeah. So instead of that, I just train my fingers to press either Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so on. Yeah. I mean, just muscle memory. Just like think, it's like the finger. I mean, Mm -hmm. you guys are so tuned in at this point. So obviously, you're not full-time necessarily just doing math computations all the time. You also continue to teach math, right? Like, is that part of like the broader dream here is that you've obviously yeah. used mathematics and the calculation to create this new life and you want to share this with uh, the people around you. Yeah, actually, I own a company. I'm, I'm one of the three co-founders of a company called Vieta Academy. Vieta is my last name, Yusnier Vieta. And the reason we have the name is because we're following the Vieta method that we have created in order to help students to get better at whatever they do. Mm-hmm. Honestly, in the case of Vieta Academy, I would say our mission is to democratize the path to and through college. We're helping high school students mainly in order for them to get to the best possible SAT scores, to get to the best possible college, whatever that means for you. And we help them get into the college and to survive during college. Very cool. So like what are sort of the key highlights in terms of what the Vieira method is? What are the key levers here? Essentially, the Vieira method combines mental math and reading techniques in order to be fast at answering a question. As you know, because I know that you got al- you almost got a perfect score, if not a perfect score in the SATs. I know you're super good at it. No doubt <laughs> in my you know mind. That? Yeah, yeah, no, I was good at the SATs going up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I read that somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> so as you know, in the SATs, for example, in the case of math, actually with the new format, you need to answer in total 58 math questions in 80 minutes mm-hmm. if you add the two math sections. So we're talking about one minute, 10 seconds, plus some break in between in order to answer one question. So it's not only about knowing the math, 
is to know how to do it under one minute, 10 seconds, yeah. you know? So by knowing mental math, in my case, I can do those 80 questions in around 10 minutes with a perfect score, the yeah. math section, of course. And what I try to do, I try to teach students how to do the same thing. Even if they spend eight times more than me, that's still enough for the 80 minutes that are required yeah. in order to get a perfect score. So I just teach them what are the techniques, what is essentially the shortcuts you could take for this specific problem. And like I say, it's, it's pretty much based about in mental math and reading techniques. Why reading techniques are important? Because you need to read the question really fast. Yeah. If you don't know how to read fast, it's going to be really hard for you to just understand what the question is about. I'm just thinking back to those days. I mean, I haven't thought about the SAT in a long time, but yeah, a lot of them are word problems, right? You got to interpret, like, how do you take a piece of English prose into a math problem, right? And if you study really hard, it gets to a point that after you read the question, you probably, I mean, after you read the whole problem, except the question, you probably can't guess what the question is going to ask you. Yeah. Because you already got it. So that's how fast it could be. You can do it like in 10 seconds average if you're extremely good at it. No, I think it's something, just like the broader education, something I've been thinking a little bit about in recent weeks in the sense that I think there's a sub-segment of just the broader population that really, really cares about education. But this might be me over-reading into it or pessimistic about a certain segment of the population where education is like less interesting or less of a standard or less of a goal for certain demographics to just like really be good at math, right? You can imagine that some segment of people are saying, oh, you know, you don't really need math. You have a calculator. When are you going to solve a geometry question in the real world? What is uh, your you sense of that? Let's like tease into some of like the social questions on the role of yeah. education and the standards of education for people. Honestly, into a certain point, I understand that there are some math stuff that we don't use in our daily life. I understand that. However, and this is the funny part about math, I use math everywhere. And when I take a decision, I think in terms of probability. What is better for me, to do this or to do that? And not only that, math also helps you to organize your ideas in your brain. So it's not only about you not knowing geometry or, or anything. It's about you knowing what is the algorithm to solve this type of problem. Mm -hmm. So knowing the steps. So every time you have a problem, it might be something, oh, I have, I have seen it before in a math problem. It's not exactly the math problem, but I can solve it the same way that I solved this math problem. So you can relate into other things. That's the beautiful thing about math that essentially helps you to organize the ideas in your head. In the case of algebra, for example, you have an X. X is the unknown. You need to know how to solve linear equations. Otherwise, you're going to be like, I don't know, you're going to be like guessing the answer. It's not a big deal. By, yeah. help, by knowing algebra, that helps you to organize ideas and to figure out things that otherwise would be impossible. Yeah. And people have some, and I say people in general, sometimes we think, oh, well, we don't need math in order to be successful. Yeah, maybe not exactly the math that you did in the school, but believe it or not, we're all doing math at any time because like I say, when you're taking a decision, you need to take the decision based on what is better for you, but you need to put some weight into that decision. Like, right. okay, this weights for me, this number. The only way you can represent that weight if with numbers and math, that's when math comes. Actually, we're doing more mental math than we realize. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great way to articulate that. And I think having that formal mathematics training just gives you a better framework to make decisions. I think that's exactly the way to put it. If you don't understand probability of something being like four times more likely than another outcome, then like, how do you think about it? Do you just guess? Do you just make random decisions? And obviously, mm -hmm. you would want, hopefully, that I think most people would agree that more accurate decision-making probably leads to a more quote-unquote happy or more optimal life because you're seeing reality more clearly and therefore making decisions more clearly based on the facts that one can observe. And that is exactly. a very mathematical, rigorous approach to decision-making versus just like, all right, I'm going to flip some coins and just like kind of randomly I, make decisions. I agree, yeah. yeah. And, and I think one thing that's I think very cool about what, what you're doing is that you're setting a standard or being a role model for intellectual pursuit. And I think that one of the things that I feel is missing in today's society is a lack of clear standards for people. I think the, one of the beauties of America, as we talked about before, is that there's a lot of freedom. And I think the potential of the downside is just too much options yeah. <laughs> where there's no relative better goal for people. If it's just equally as beneficial to be smart as stupid or mathematically good or mathematically bad, I think that's overly politically correct. I think there should be, hey, like all things equal, you should be better at math, 
right? Mm -hmm. Like you shouldn't be necessarily prideful that you're not good at math. It's like, okay, if you aren't good at math, that's fine. That's okay. We should help you get better, but that's a worthy goal. And I think that's the problem where people say, okay, you're bad at math, that you're still great. Don't worry about it. Like you're great. And I think that's a disservice to people. I think it's a really a disservice where you're almost by not trying to hurt their feeling, you're mm -hmm. allowing them to not be a better version of themselves. And I hope that through these conversations and through the work you're doing at the academy, inspire people to be like, it is okay if you're not good at math today, but it's not okay if you don't try to improve yourself. And exactly. hopefully that's like the message that we can spread to the world. And let me tell you one more thing about Viet Academy. What we're trying to do is essentially to reduce the gap between rich and poor. Why? Because honestly, right now, if you have money or you can afford a tutor, and that will give you an advantage. So we're trying to create this system that works independently and it's very cheap. Honestly, we only charge almost nothing, like $5 a month. And you have a system that can help you all the way into the SATs and ACTs. And when normally this, this type of system, they cost thousands of dollars. We want to reduce that gap because yeah. I came from Cuba, a country that, I mean, I hate the government. Of course, I love the people, but I love something about Cuba. And what I love is like, for example, I had the same chance. As long as you're not against them in terms of politics, if you're rich or poor, actually nobody's rich in Cuba, but let's say you're rich or poor, <laughs> you have the same, I would say, opportunity to get into college as long as you practice. But in America, with so many options and with the money, you can afford to have a tutor and that will give you an edge, which is okay. I'm not against rich people. I, I want to be rich too. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. So I'm up to that. But at the same time, I want to help the people that normally can't afford those softwares, those tutors. They need something like Viet Academy. Yeah. It sounds like a credible price point for it. It is like super affordable. It's $5 a month. It's like, yeah, okay. That's like an app download or a coffee or something, right? So if you can get your, your kid a step up in the math game, that sounds well worth it. And I think that's like something that I would say that America is still like figuring out now. I mean, I don't think that's an like answered problem in America or around the globe. I mean, I think there's a lot of debate currently around affirmative action. How do we balance the, the education gap between the rich and the poor? I think we could probably all agree that we should give everyone an equal opportunity to achieve. And clearly mm -hmm. there's different opportunity levels given your social economic position. So services that help people that have less access, you know, something that is quite affordable, that's, you know, sounds like a very worthy goal to maximize the talent of every individual, which would be good for the country aside from the individual, right? If like every single American and every single global citizen could really be the best possible version of themselves, I think we'd be mm -hmm. all living in a much more enlightened, productive, happy society where people are feeling that their innate talents are being utilized properly, right? Like you can see a world where you weren't able to pursue your mathematical talent to the extent that you have, and you'd probably be, I don't know, still making $20 a month in Cuba. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm living the American dream, believe it or not. Yeah. For me, this is the American dream. Yeah. So I also know that you were on a TV show, Superhuman Show. We've done quite a bit of media. I'm curious to hear a little bit about the behind the scenes experience. Was it weird? I mean, always, I think, given talking a little bit from my experience, you're always putting on a little bit of a show. I'm curious to hear your experience and thoughts on it. Honestly, what you see on the show is not exactly what you see behind the scenes, right. <laughs> at least in my experience. Yeah. I mean, it was great behind the scenes, don't get me wrong, but you know, but it's totally different. In that show, I remember, for example, saying hi to Mike Tyson. Hey, hi. That was on the show. But for me, it was a great experience, too. <laughs> yeah. Because I admired the guy as a boxer. So even when I was in Cuba, I heard about him. So for me, having that interaction with someone, it was great. Being on the show, it was a great opportunity for me, especially because I was one of the only 12 people that were selected in the whole country mm -hmm. in order to compete for the superhuman title. And that's an honor for me. Yeah. Because I'm telling you... Uh, a few years ago, I was in Cuba with only $20 a month. And now I'm in Fox and Fox on this show. It's like I couldn't imagine that 10 years ago. So that actually opens my door of opportunities that I don't know what is going to happen to me in 10 years. Yeah. So to be part of this show is very inspiring for me. It sounds fun. So for folks that haven't tuned in, what's the basic premise? What's the idea behind the Superhuman show? The Superhuman show was essentially... They select 12 people in the country and we all have our own talents and we need to perform to show the talent and the people in the audience will vote for who they think is the superhuman. Right. Whoever wins gets $100,000. I didn't win. I didn't win. I wish I could, but Spoiler that's alert. fine. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. That's right. <laughs> but it was a great experience. I'm telling you, being the show... With that exposure, that helps me to build my path. Right now, I'm with, with Beard Academy, and having that media exposure helps me to promote 
what I think is important in my life. No, absolutely. You know, for me, having been on some TV shows, Shark Tank and et cetera, the weirdest thing is that you tape so much and like what's actually shown on TV is like a very, very small slice of it, which is like <laughs> true, right? Like you were on doing whatever you were doing, but it's uh, a very interesting snapshot of what was reality. It's like, you, are you kidding me? They cut that part. I love that part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which I guess yeah. kind of relates back into like this kind of creating a narrative around in Cuba, there's like this narrative created around you, this brainwashing, this propaganda. But I think it's important to note that whatever media that we're getting, and I think that's why we have the rise of the podcast, where we can have like a long form discussion where we're not going to be, you know, talking for an hour as opposed to like getting two minutes on like Fox News. I think that's why you see these formats increasing in popularity because I think people realize that their information sources in America, obviously a lot more accessibility, but I think again, there is just a limited amount of time and we need to just be vigilant in making sure that we get the full complete picture on any story, right? I think mm -hmm. there's just like too much nuance in this world. It's complicated. It's not like mm -hmm. a talking head on ABC has like the one true truth. And I think that's what like, I think kind of seeing the political landscape where people are just debating about what are even facts, alternative facts, like what's the difference, right? It's kind of a wild territory that we're in. One thing that has helped me in the past in order to know who to follow is to travel. Mm. If you travel a lot, you will learn from different cultures, you will learn other experiences, and you can actually have an opinion of yeah. your own with no problem and without checking if it is true or not. I think traveling is another way to actually gather uh, truthful information. Yeah, you just break the context of what you're in. I mean, have you spent a lot of time traveling much more now since you know, you're know you settled, you're out of Cuba now? Is that something that you're just doubling down into? Yeah, not right now because I have a daughter. She's just one year, so I yeah. actually kind of settled down a little bit. Yeah. But before, yeah, I remember traveling a lot and I love it. It's one of my passions. Yeah. One thing I want to touch upon was the rise of video game sports. Obviously, you know, you're a world champion in like a, a very, I would say similar related, you know, mental sport, right? Like these, mm -hmm. these calculations. Mm -hmm. Do you see this space growing? You could imagine that maybe in decade, two decades, you know, in some years, can we imagine a world where these mental sports, these cognitive sports is mm -hmm. as popular than a physical sport? Is that too crazy? Honestly, no. Honestly, no. Let me tell you the long story. Me, in personal, I don't do video games because I was born in Cuba and we didn't have that many <laughs> video games. Right. So I'm not an addict to video games, but I can see that it's actually another sport that is growing a lot. Yeah. Especially with so many social networks and everything, I think it's going to happen. It's in the near future, we're going to have a sports like video game, people playing video games, that is going to be one of the most important sports. I can see that. I think it's not crazy to think that it's not going to happen. It should happen. So. Yeah. How about the calculation stuff? How about things like calendar dates? Is that just not visual enough? You know, me as a observer, it's like, okay, you watch a video game, it's much more visual, just like watching a football exactly. game or a basketball game, very visual. I presume that, you know, when you're doing a world record, you're just like on a computer, like blasting out with your fingers. Exactly. Yeah. Honestly, what we do in mental math is not as fun as it is probably video games. And that's one of the reasons probably it's not so popular. Mm -hmm. Most people haven't heard about the mental calculation World Cup. Um, almost everyone knows about the soccer World Cup or at least heard about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One thing I think one mission that we need to have, and when I say we, I mean the community of meta calculators. What we need to do is we need to make the sport more likable. Actually, I'm one of the ones working on that. Hmm. In that sense, I created a game that is called Hag Tuck a few years ago. And this How game is- What is that? Hag Tuck? Hag Tuck. H-E-C-T-O-C. Hag Tuck. Hag Tuck. Okay. Hag Actually, if you have an, an iPhone or Android, you can download the app. And essentially this game, let me explain how it is, because it combines everything, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. Essentially it's like given six digits, mm -hmm. a number from one to nine, no zeros, from one to nine. Uh, let's say you have number one, two, three, four, five, six, just to give an example. You need to add operators like addition, subtraction, multiplication, division in between and parentheses, and also exponents, that's the other one that you can enter. And you need to make the expression equal to a hundred. Ah, that's a fun little puzzle. And the funny thing about that is that I, I discovered that when I was in college at the University of Havana in Cuba in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. I was riding a bus to get to the university. So I'm telling you, in Cuba, just one way was taking me like two hours to get to the university. Yeah. It was really hard for me. So it's not only that I was poor, it's, it's also that I was actually doing a lot of sacrifices to get into college. Mm -hmm. 
So I had like two hours to kill, but I didn't know what to do. So what I did, I grabbed the ticket that they give you when you take the bus. Sometimes they give you a ticket in queue, sometimes they don't. <laughs> the times they do, I grabbed the ticket. And the ticket is essentially like a six-digit number, like six digits, yeah. like one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, what can I do with this? So I can kill the time for now. And I realized about, oh, what if I get 100? The funny thing is that after two, three, four days trying, I was always getting an answer. I'm like, oh, my God, I think it's possible to do with every single combination. Yeah. And I start asking someone else, like, ticket. Oh, can you give me a ticket, please, so I can check something? Yeah. And I realized that I could do it. So I did my own program, except for around 200 combinations. The others can be solved. So we're talking about half a million combinations. Most of them, like 99 point something percent of them, can be solved with no problem. Huh. And it's very funny because they had a game like that. There is a show in, German, in Germany. I forgot the name because the name was in German and I forgot. But essentially what they did, they played Hector on the show. There was this kid downloaded the app a few months ago and the people in the show liked the app and they were like, okay, let's have, let's have that on the show. And this kid was against a guy that I know him because I met him in the last Mental Calculation World Cup. So he's an expert in mental math. And guess what? This kid, he beats the guy because he practiced Hector so much that he gets really good at it. Yeah. He could even beat an expert. And it was great for me to see the kind of impact that could have to anyone, especially to a kid. And people in Germany went crazy. And I'm telling you, they love the show. And we're getting a lot of feedback after the show. It's been great. And that's what fulfills me because I wanted to create something for the people to use, for the people to train their brain. Yeah. And for the first time, I found something that people likes a lot because it's really hard to make math sexy or cool, whatever right. you want to call it. And yeah. I think we found a way. So that gives me inspiration to find other ways. It makes sense because I think it's very understandable for most people, right? Okay, you have six digits. How do we make this into 100, right? Like anyone with some notion of numbers understands what that means. And I think as you get into more and more advanced math, you know, like linear algebra, differential equations, at certain points, you're talking about like doing mathematical yeah. proofs and just like, <laughs> okay, that, I don't even know what you're talking about now. So I think this in terms of a math is very, very approachable. Like it almost reminds me, like, I presume as you're doing your math degree, did you end up just like writing a proof in terms of like, okay, can you generalize this problem out for certain Actually, types of patterns or certain types of digits, you can always get some sort of sum. The approach that I use was computer science. I tried all the combinations and okay. tried to solve them with a computer program because mathematically speaking, it was really hard to prove that almost every combination had a, had a chance. Right. It was easy for me to just try the more the than half a million. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was only you... half a million combinations, so it's, it's doable with a computer. Right. So the comp it's like a combination, right? Because they have the six yeah. digits and then there's a bunch of repeats. So we have nine to the power of six combinations. Right which is essentially a little more than half a million combinations. And I guess you don't count zeros? Yeah, you don't count zeros. You don't count zeros. The reason okay. we don't use zeros is because sometimes you can't find an answer, and we would like to avoid that. We want to find the answer okay. as much as we can. Okay. <laughs> so you basically do like a search by exhaustion. All right, let's have all the possible combinations and permutations of operators between the each digit and see if mm -hmm. That'd be like a fun homework problem for second-year computer science students or something. We can try one right now. If you tell me six numbers, maybe you can try to solve one. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'll throw out some numbers for you. Uh, you can repeat these if you want. You, you could repeat whatever okay. you want. What was your birthday? Zero four, what, 26? Okay, let's put four. Let's put okay, four. Yeah, yeah, zero yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Four, two, six, eight, two. And you have to tell me one more day because I have five. Nine. Nine. Okay. Okay. Essentially, this one is a little tough. What I would do here, for example, I got it. Yeah. Let me show you. Let me just write it down really quick so I can show you. Okay. I was going to say that I just choose one of the ones that couldn't be solved. <laughs> okay. Check this out. Yeah. You're not that lucky. <laughs> check this out. All I did was I took the number 426829, yeah. the one that you told me, yeah. and I made this expression. Four times all this. Okay. Right. What is all this? This is 26 minus 8. That will be 18. Yep. Minus 2 will be 16. Plus 9 will be 25. Right? times 4. 4 times 25. That's 100. Right there. Nice. <laughs> Double check. So it is correct. <laughs> and it's 100. So essentially, I just solved a hectic problem. Yeah. If you download the app, just to give an example, we'll start by level one. Level one is just as simple as just writing, I would say, one operator that will make the expression equal to 100. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with level one because it's really hard to get to this level, honestly, yeah. because you need a lot of practice. Yeah. And I have solved maybe half a million of this for sure. Right. I just remember like as a kid, I remember like kind of playing with these kind of 
mental calculation type stuff. And I think at a certain point, it's like an intuition, right? Like it sounds like you have just some good patterns of like feeling kind of like where numbers would fit together, right? Would that, yeah, would that be actually, the best way to think about it? Because I think a lot of people that might not have done a lot of mental math or like these kind of puzzles don't even know where to begin, right? And I, yeah. think, I think my, it's like there's some intuition that you have, like, okay, these this feels kind of right. Like this kind of structure feels kind of right here. Would, would that be the best way to describe how you I see start, a problem? I start doing, for example, Hector, based yeah. on intuition, I was able to do it really fast. And then I tried to put the intuition in war into an algorithm. Mm. And this is what I came up. For example, if you want to obtain 100, what are the nicest way to obtain 100? Maybe four times 25. That's one way. Yeah. So every time I see a four at the beginning, I probably try four times 25, like I mm. did with you. If I see a two at the beginning, maybe I try two 50. times 50. Yeah. Or if I see a 10 somehow, I have, for example, a four and a six, that would be give me a 10, right? Right. And then I'll try to get a two later. So 10 to the power of two, that will be 100. All right. So by knowing the factors of a hundred or the ways you can get a hundred, that give you an advantage of what to look. I see. Yeah, I think this kind of reminds me of how very, very good chess players aren't just blindly searching all possible combinations. They know like there's certain patterns they want to match towards. Mm -hmm. And like, it sounds like you want to just go to the multiples, right? Like, okay, mm -hmm. 10 by 10, four by 25, like what are all uh -huh. the permutations here and just kind of jam them together. Like these are like, the things you're searching for, which makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah, that makes totally sense. That's yeah. the way I actually do it, kind of. Yeah, cool. Uh, one last question here. So one of the things that is important for physical athletes are their sleep, their nutrition, they're measuring their biomarkers, whether that's blood lipids, cholesterol, testosterone, mm -hmm. etc. I imagine that might be premature in the cognitive space. I mean, I think there is some early conversation with like video game teams exploring some of these concepts. Have you personally explored some of these concepts? Have people in the mental athlete game tried interesting diets, right? Have, you know, ketogenic diets are something that's popular around yeah. you know, energy levels. Have you tried fasting? Have you tried in certain types of diets? Do you do weird sleep patterns? What is your thoughts there? In my case, I can tell you that I know a lot of people actually, for example, Nelson Dallas, he's actually, yeah. he has his own diet. And in my case, for example, I always take care of my sleep. I make sure that I sleep at least seven hours. And I know it's hard to do it when you have a daughter like me, but I, I always try to do my best in yeah. that sense because I feel more energetic when I'm rested. Yeah. In terms of exercises, sometimes I do exercises, but mostly I don't do it. And it's actually my fault. It's because with so many things that I want in my life, I just focus on what I think I have to spend a lot of time in the company, right. so it's really hard, but I'm always willing to explore new ways. So actually, this is my way of saying that I'm willing to try what Yeah, I yeah, Zilla sent out some product. I mean, I think the ketones and the nootropics, I'm curious to get your thoughts. I check it out. Those are one of the things that I would like to try. Yeah, yeah cool. Happy <laughs> to coordinate that and we'll get your feedback there. Awesome. Perfect. I think it's interesting where I think with physical sports, there's just a lot more eyeballs, which means a lot more money. So there's a lot more work and focus and quote unquote science on how to optimize an athlete. But I think there's a really strong argument that mental athletes like yourself are going to be more akin to what creates more economic value for more people, right? Like the average yeah. worker is going to probably look more like you than Tom Brady, who's throwing a leather mm -hmm. ball for a living. So it'd be interesting to see if there's a point where cognitive athletes or esports athletes have the biomarker tracking, the cycling of training, the cycling of nutrition, just like athletes do. I wonder when that will get into the world of cognitive sports. I have no doubt in my mind that having a good diet and a good sleep is super important for not only for physical athletes, also for mental athletes or yep. mathletes, like we call yep. ourselves. <laughs> so definitely that's the way it should go in the near future for me. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on. So where do people find you? Obviously, you got the Vera Academy, you got Heck Talk the Game. What are you looking forward to for the rest of the year? So in my case, I might be on a show later this year. I can't disclose exactly what network or anything. But essentially, I'm going to be working on Viet Academy. That's my full-time job. Well, I have more than one full-time job, but this is my first. Besides my daughter and my family, this is one of my, the most important things in my life, uh, Viet Academy, in which we want to expand all the knowledge that we have to offer to everyone in the world. Again, I'm going to be pretty much making sure that the company goes well. And that's essentially going to be my focus from today until the end of the year. Any competitions coming up? There is one right now at the end of this month, but I don't think I'm going to be able to make it because the TV show that I was yeah. telling you before, uh, for the next year, for sure, I will be competing. Awesome. Well, good luck on future competitions. And then if people want to stay in touch, you have different social platforms. Are you on Twitter, etc.? I'm on Twitter, Mental Calendar. 
I'm on Facebook. Uh, my name, but I think it's a personal page, so I think I already reached 5,000 uh, <laughs> friends. Maxed out, oh, yeah. I have to create a new page, I guess, for Facebook. <laughs> All right, Yusnir, thanks so much. It's a great conversation. Thanks so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Right, cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in this week, everyone. As always, please send my producer Zill and I any feedback or topic or guest suggestions to podcast at hvmn.com. We read every single message and work really hard to make this program valuable and educational for you. Also, don't forget our ongoing special offer. By leaving a review on iTunes, you can get a one month supply of our new Omega-3 product, Kato. Simply rate us with a written review on iTunes, screenshot it and send it out to our email hotline again that email is podcast at hvmn.com appreciate the love and support and i'll see you again next week